As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew. And it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. If 20% of people are level four, like fully evangelist versus 2% of people, the, the difference is a hundredfold with how viral the article goes. You can't try to like get everyone on level four because that's not possible. You know, you know, the same article is not going to delight everybody. But if you're doing something that you love, that you would love if someone sent you, other people are probably going to feel the same way. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to Creative Elements. It's great to have you here as always. And we have a big episode for you today. But you know, if I'm honest, Publishing a weekly podcast and a weekly newsletter, it's really intense and can get pretty exhausting. After my interview with Eric Jorgensen talking about his book, The Almanac of Naval Ravikant, I had an itch to create more long form, highly produced work. And I've been writing a lot over the last few months about how conflicted I am when it comes to this idea of consistency. Consistency is one of the most commonly discussed elements on this show, and it's been incredibly important in helping me to get to where I am today. But that same consistency feels like a major constraint on the level of depth that I can invest into any one article or episode of this show. So more and more, I find myself wanting to step back and take more time for my writing specifically. That brings me to today's guest, Tim Urban. Tim has become one of the internet's most popular writers since starting his blog, Wait But Why, in 2013. Like the initial business premise was that there's... Tons of writing out there, tons of blogs, tons of other stuff, but there's not that much like really, really great stuff. 
And so what if I put my full time into it and tried to do something that was better, that was just like a leg up and stood out? Because my other blog was a typical blog. I, you know, I just spent five hours a week on it, less. And so the idea was like, you know, let's try something really great. And, and so we didn't know we were hiring a team of writers or whatever. But as it started, um, I like loved the craft. I, mean, I, I hated the actual doing of the things, but I loved like having produced a post. It was like such a satisfying thing. And it started to take off on its own. So we just kind of kept it like that. That became the thing. And Tim really puts time into his writing to make it really, really great. His posts are often tens of thousands of words. That's like a full-length published novel. And Tim's long-form writing isn't just informative. It's easy to read. It's entertaining. He was also a pioneer in creating simple, colorful illustrations for his blog, juxtaposed against intense topics like artificial intelligence, brain-computer interfaces, alien life, the size of the universe, and more. Because we had this online tutoring company, we had this... uh these tablets lying around that tutors would use as like an online whiteboard to explain something like, a, you know, to a student, like math or whatever. And I, I, I like looked at one one night, like 2 a.m. and I'm like in my office writing a blog post because I'm me. And, um, and I see that and I was like, hmm, what if I like put a drawing in it? And I, so I started using it and people liked that post. They were, you know, the, the friends of mine who were reading it and the, the readers I had were like delighted. So I was like, okay, let me do more. So I, I realized it was like such a fun addition, like bad stick figure drawings was a fun addition to my style of writing. The success of his blog has garnered millions of unique page views, thousands of patrons, and famous fans like Elon Musk. In 2016, Tim was invited to give a TED Talk called Inside the Mind of a Master Procrastinator, which has been viewed now nearly 50 million times. Tim talks a lot about procrastination because it takes a long time to create any one of these pieces. And despite initially promising new posts every week, Tim's new schedule is new posts every sometimes. It feels like it's like birthing a baby a little bit to get one of these things out. But yeah, but it's, it's gratifying when it's done. So in this episode, we talk about the beginning of Wait But Why, Tim's research and writing process, how he thinks about A-plus work, and why he loves the struggle of writing online. I'll be sharing some of my favorite articles from Wait But Why in our Creative Elements listeners group on Facebook this week. So join us there if you haven't already. And as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. As you listen, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. Just take a screenshot. Let me know that you're listening. But now let's hear from Tim. I was running a test prep company that I started with um, my oldest friend, Andrew Finn. And yeah, and he and I were just growing and, and running this this kind of tutoring test prep company that became an online, you know, through an online uh, medium eventually. And I always had, um, I don't know, always, it's hard to remember what I actually wanted to do when I was 17, 18, 19. But, you know, for a few years, at least before I came out of college, I'd always wanted to do something creative, you know, music, writing, whatever. That was just kind of what was, you know, the arts is what was uh, my goal. And I moved to LA to kind of get started on maybe like a movie scoring career. I wasn't quite sure. But my tendency is to really, I, I have like a, like a fierce self-defeating monster in me that wants to procrastinate and like push off anything that is important. And I've gotten better at controlling that uh, a little, but at the time I was just like a total amateur. I was like in year zero of my real life and like had absolutely no idea how to manage my own issues. And um, so I ended up basically the, the side job I had was tutoring and I ended up spending all my time like growing this tutoring company, which is classic like procrastinator thing to do. And then I, you know, partnered with Andrew and we, and we, we started actually turning it into a real company. And the reason I knew that, you know, cause for a while I was like, this is so fun working with my best friend on a big strategy game. And we have 
we hire people we like. So we have this like fun team and like dream job, right? I mean, I was just so excited about everything. And yet, like as the years went on, I started this, this creative impulse started to creep in. I was just like, I need this isn't the this isn't the right thing for me. And I knew at that point that it wasn't some kind of delusion because my job was so fun. There was no excuses. I'm like, this is such a great fun situation. And if I'm still dying to do something else, gotta do something else. You know, but I think is I really liked working with Andrew and we didn't that was it was such a bummer to stop that. So basically the goal was to figure out a way for, you know, to do something I wanted to be doing, but but still be kind of partnered with Andrew. Um, and the idea we came up with was to start kind of um some kind of media platform, writing platform, you know, and 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 because that's something that because Andrew's interest would be in, in it as a business idea and as a just building something that um that was an important thing and could be a lucrative thing and could be a useful thing for us. In addition, if I was just going to sit there and like write poetry and put it into a drawer, that's not really a great partnership for him. So this was a a nice like kind of fit the middle of the Venn diagram where where it's like I, we can both be excited about it. And so that started in 2013 while Andrew kept growing the other company with me more of his like in an advisor role and him is kind of an advisor role for what I was doing. Did you try to push him towards the film scoring career as a joint venture? Uh, no, because there were a few things I was interested in. Like I wanted to write a musical and I had, I had been on the side, like kind of writing one. And the problem there is that like, unless it's Hamilton you know, or Book of Mormon or these like ones that become international sensations, it's not a great business venture. It takes like five years to do it. There's a good chance it never sees a stage. So that's not great. The point was that he was going to be growing our company while I was doing this. If, if, if it wasn't going to be something that was going to be cool for him to kind of own half of down the road, then it was, I would have felt really bad and I uh, wouldn't have been good. So, so that was, and then film scoring, it's just, um, it's, there's nothing for him to own there really. It's like, I, I'm doing, I'm providing my services to directors for something. And so, plus I didn't really like film scoring anymore. It was too, um, my, my, my creative ego couldn't handle it because you like write this music and you're so proud of it. And then they put like this bad dialogue over it. And it's like an insult. And I was like, this is not the right career for me. I'm an, I'm a crazy person and I, I won't be able to handle this. So, but I'd been blogging on the side and I really liked that too. This was an idea. I was like, okay, you know, th- th- this, this could be a cool kind of thing because if, we didn't know. Maybe we'd be hiring a team of writers, and I think it has managed to do what it was supposed to do. Like um, Andrew likes being involved, and I get to still be involved in the other company. And um, Wait But Why is a um, a nice big platform now that we can use for a lot of stuff. And I am doing what I want to do, and I like it. I'm thinking back to circa 2013, and I think that was about like you know when BuzzFeed was starting to happen, and sort of these content sites that were just like several posts a day all the time like the the game was just being incredibly short form and prolific mm-hmm. so when you were starting this and you guys were were thinking about this as a business how did you think about the the role of consistency and cadence i was kind of basing my initial ideas off of my old blog which was pretty much short form and I actually had a lot of lists and I'm annoyed because I was doing the list before they were cool. Like that, I had a, an ongoing thing called 19 things I don't understand. And it was like volume six of it eventually. And that was before Buzzfeed started. So I was very annoyed when Buzzfeed comes around and starts doing lists for everything and just burns out this great medium. I mean, they did so many because it's a good medium. I mean, it's a good medium for a writer. It's good for a reader. It's a catchy headline. And they just burnt it out and they cheapened it and it made it seem like it was like the definition now of like a cheap article. 
So that annoyed me. But my very first post was seven ways to be inseparable on Facebook. And that wasn't emulating BuzzFeed. It was stubbornly doing the thing I like to do in spite of BuzzFeed. Yeah, the initial idea was, you know, I'd like to be like, oh, we wanted to like do these like long, deep, great, you know, long form things. And that wasn't the plan. The plan was to try to, you know, go viral and make this a thing. You know, we didn't really know. And it was anonymous for a while, which was intentional because it was like, who knows? Maybe we can always go public, but kind of fun to be anonymous and just makes, you know, leaves it wide open to what you can do and kind of fun if no one knows who you are. And for the first, you know, bunch of posts, I was anonymous. And so that was just toward the end of the old blog. But then when the new one started, wait, but why? They started kind of short form with the intention of being high quality. That was the, the, the thing we wanted. The whole premise was like A plus quality because that's not, that's what's rare. We're not going to out BuzzFeed BuzzFeed. We're not going to out quantity these companies, but we can maybe out quality them. And so uh, it got going from there. No rules, just kind of very, you know, whatever I wanted to write about, basically, I just wrote about. And I just tried to do stuff that could be kind of catchy. And then, you know, some, some were infographics, some were longer things. But it was about post 10 or 12, that one post I did. And at the time, I, I will fully admit, I was like trying to go viral. I was like, what is like, you know, what, what, what are topics that are, that could catch fire? And so the, this one topic about like millennials and why they're like the, the, the perfect storm of millennial and happiness that the world is right now, in, in my opinion, or back in 2013. So I wrote that and it, it, it worked. It like went viral. Um, and it, and it, you know, it totally, um, put the site on the map, uh, still was anonymous, but the, the, like the email list went from 300 people at the beginning of that week to 30,000 a week later. I mean, it was totally game changer. And so at that point, that, that changes everything right now because now you have readers. I also, I also decided to, because people were contacting us about, can we do an interview? And I was like, you know, I don't want to never be able to do an interview. I know I, it's not, I'm not like a private person really. So I'm like, it's not like I, I, this is something that's important to me. So started just put, putting my name out there and put a little like about page about me and Andrew or whatever. And then um, as, as I got good feedback and the, you know, people were really into it and it kept growing, I started to like get a little bit more, I'm like, okay, you know, maybe because at the beginning I was like, you know, I'm not going to do something serious because who am I? Who am I doing anything serious? I don't have a degree in this stuff. I'm just a dude. But as I started going, I was like, okay, I think people like care about what I think about stuff or at least the people that are coming back to this site. So my confidence like slowly grew that I can like take on anything and it's fine. And, and, and the, 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 the fact that there would be readers was like this adrenaline rush. And I think adrenaline, like it like puts me into another gear. So, so for that first like six months or eight months, like I just wrote it once a week. Uh, first it was twice a week and then that was not working. And I, my best things were the ones that took a full week. So once a week and um, they started to get a little longer and a little more serious. And um, I did one post on like the Fermi paradox, which is the, why we haven't seen aliens. One of my favorite posts of yours. Oh, good. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it's a really, really fascinating topic. And I remember talking to Andrew and we were like, kind of like, okay, well, this is like one of those like Tim nerd posts. It's not going to go viral, but the people who like this kind of thing will love it. We were wrong. Like it was one of the most popular posts. Turns out, that, I mean, I think it is uh, for nerds. There's just a lot of them out there. Um, and so I started to realize, like, I was like, okay, my like weird interests, like a lot of people have those same interests. You know, this isn't, uh, and so th- this is like the beginning of me being like, okay, if I, if I some, find something fascinating, I'm going to assume there's a stadium of Tims out there who are going to agree exactly. And I just started doing exactly what I wanted to write about, like what I was interested in, regardless of viral. Stop, stop thinking about going viral. Stop. And now it was just trying to delight the current people that were there. And I was just trying to do that by following my own interests. Something you brought up that I'm so glad you brought up because I I hadn't thought to ask you about this. 
one of the first episodes of the show was talking with our mutual friend, James Clear. And he referenced you in talking about how he thinks about the quality of work and the difference of doing A plus work versus A minus work. One thing I'm really glad about now is that I took the time to get it right. Tim Urban and I have talked about this, the difference between doing A plus work and A minus work. And it sounds like a fairly small thing. And it's like, hey, an A minus or a B plus, like that's pretty good. You know, nice job. But actually in any sort of media, books, podcasts, YouTube, social media, the the internet provides infinite leverage. And so all the returns are at the tail end. And so doing A plus work is, it's not like, 1x or 2x or even 5x better. It's like 100x or 1,000x better. Um, And so I think it's worth it to take the time um, to do that. Could you talk a little bit more about what A-plus work means to you? Yeah. So, okay. So, you know, if you think about like sometimes grades correlate to numbers, like 1 through 100. So like maybe a 97 to 100 is an A-plus or whatever. You, you, You can never try to go for the 100 in writing. It doesn't work. There's no such thing. Mark Twain always would have done it better than you. I'm saying this because like, I, I have a perfectionist personality. And if I think something could be better, it drives me insane. And I have to try to make it better. And that's a trap. And often trying to obsessively make something better and better makes it worse. It makes it longer, makes it more convoluted. You know, you get all the ideas in, but now it's not that fun to read. So um, if, if this can be a trap. This is kind of like the first disclaimer about this topic. But then if you're, can be, have that, if you're pushing back against that instinct, then it can be a good rule against a different instinct we have on the other side, which is laziness or, or, or just like, it's okay. This is fine. This is good. Versus like, if I did six hours of research, I could add one paragraph here that would be really good, but I need to understand that topic so well to write just that one paragraph. I don't ever write something where I couldn't in a Q and a get, get asked about it and not actually have something to say. I don't want to be like, Oh, I, I know exactly what I wrote there and I don't really understand, but it, I, that's why I don't do that. Plus it's just in general, like you end up just writing, um, you know, whatever's in that paragraph, the specific words will be more nuanced and more informed. So it's like that paragraph is important for whatever reason, just say it's like, it's something that really, it, it's uh, it's the perfect analogy that really crystallizes this by making you realize that this thing is analogous to Hitler's rise, or this thing is analogous to the advent of cars, uh, whatever. And so something like that, and I'm like, if, if it's in, in an important way, if I'm like adding in this metaphor could like crystallize this at the end in everyone's heads in a way that like really, whatever, I'm, you know, this is never not based on a specific example, but putting that six hours in for that paragraph, I would do almost every time. Or for me, if drawings is just takes me forever because I'm truly a non-talented artist. Like anything I do, I have to look online at Google Images, try to see how that would look. And then, um, but sometimes I'm like, you know, adding this little drawing here, it's not actually necessary, but it would be this little moment of delight. It would be a little funny extra. And it would just be a little, and it's going to take me four hours to do that drawing. I'll probably put that time in because I'm like, look, the four hours is temporary. The drawing is permanent. And it's funny because it's the exact opposite instinct of a procrastinator, which is let me treat my present self at the expense of future me. And then it's like when, when I'm doing this post, like that instinct is now fighting with this totally opposite one, which is screw over present me, get this drawing done. It's torture right now. It's going to keep me up late, but forever that thing will be there. So I don't know. It's a bunch of battling internal things, but the A plus part of it is once you've done this and you've crystallized these ideas through all this extra research and you put these drawings in and you know you've you, you've reworked it and you've cut it down and you've you know really kind of tried to make it this special package that's not just an article that's 
here for three days, but it's an evergreen kind of art sculpture in a in an art gallery that's just there forever. Now that's going to stand out because it's just like most people, it's not the business model of most writing sites. And it's not the business model of most writers who, if they're doing something that high quality, they're doing a book. So just a super high quality article online that took like hundreds of hours is not a common thing. And that's kind of became our model. After a quick break, Tim and I talk about his approach to writing and his take on the quality versus consistency trade-off. So stick around and we'll be right back. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash J. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash J and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash creator. Welcome back to my conversation with Tim Urban of Wait But Why. As Tim referenced earlier, he's affectionately known for publishing incredible long-form pieces, but struggling to publish them on time or consistently. And despite that lack of consistency, Wait But Why is one of the most popular blogs on the internet, and Tim has had a ton of success. Creatives will often tell me that they hate the idea of being consistent, they just can't get themselves to publish on a regular basis, they run out of ideas, and they just want to be like Tim Urban. 
So I asked Tim what he would say to aspiring creators who just want to be like Tim Urban. I'm not sure I would have known this at the beginning, but I think I, I think I have more insight now, which is that look, regular is not nothing, right? Like if you're doing something and you have readers that like what you're doing, obviously not doing anything for a long time, they will forget you. Putting out regular stuff is really important. And and Waypo I was built on that actually. Even though the kind of joke became I was always like a little late, at least for the first year. It was first, really more like first, yeah, maybe first year and a half. It was new post every Tuesday. And so sometimes that was Wednesday, sometimes even Thursday, but there was a new post every week. And I think that was very helpful to building an, an audience. At some point, there, that audience had, I had won them over to the extent that I, I could take longer and they'd still come back. But I think the beginning, regular is good. That said, the far more important thing is quality. and 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 so. The way I would describe that is, if you think about different reactions, obviously, if a reader is bored, doesn't like it, that they're, they're, they're gone, right? And I'm sure a lot of people have had that experience on my site because it's not for everyone, right? I mean, it's it, 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 you're never going to, some people are going to dislike what you do, either hate it or just be bored by it or dislike your sense of humor or whatever. And that's, but so, so there's those people who read it and they're just like, okay. Then there's people who read it and they're like, they liked it. It was fine, right? They're, they're gone too. They're never coming back. Then there's people who, read it and they are like pleasantly surprised and they like it, right? They, they might come back. They might, you know, remember your first battle is to have them even look at what the site is. They got a link, someone shared or they saw on social media. They clicked it, they read the article. The amount of times I've done that and then clicked out and I never even looked at the name of the site or the author. So they might at that point, if you're lucky, they might look at the site or what might happen is they might leave and forget about you and then somehow end up on a second article of yours and be like, oh, this thing again. Isn't this? And then you see on the sidebar, it's like, oh, I read that other article. And that's when they start to click for them. And they start to say, what is this? Right. And then they might do, this is the, this is the uh, promise land for all online writers is they might subscribe to your email list. Social media, fine, but social media, you can't trust those companies. You know, they might let you see those followers again. They might not. Emails safer. So they sign up for your email list. Now you've got them because now you can reach them anytime you want, regular or not regular writing. Right. So that, that's a huge reason that regular becomes less important once you have an email list. So there's that level. But that, then there's a level beyond that, which is they read it and they fucking loved it. Like they read it and they're like, and they're just like sitting there and they're either crying at the end or they're laughing. And they're, and, and so now, now you've won yourself a salesman. They are going to, probably subscribe, bookmark it, whatever. They're going to be back. But even more importantly, they're going to start evangelizing this. And I know this because I do this. When I love something, I will text, you know, four text threads and just each one be like, you know, this is like a must read or like, this is great. Or like, you would love this in particular. And I'm thinking of who would like it. Like, what's a better salesperson? And this is when I sing, talking about like the A plus thing. Like the difference between, if you call those like level one, two, three, and four, the difference between three and four is massive. If if twenty percent of people are level four, like fully evangelists, versus two percent of people, the the difference is a hundredfold with how viral the article goes. You can't try to like get everyone on level four because that's not possible. You know, you know, the same article is not going to delight everybody. But if you're doing something that you love, that you would love if someone sent you, other people are probably going to feel the same way. I love that perspective. So if you're if you're imagining a, a stadium full of Tims and you found a topic that you know Tim would be into this. How do you know throughout the course of this thing that often takes you a very long time, you get very close to, how do you know when, okay, this, this stadium full of Tims would fucking love this. They're at a level four. How do you know when you've reached that? 
I don't. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and this is the thing about articles, which is cooler than books, which is that it's okay if the, if it's if I'm wrong. It's kind of like the 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 game becomes. And this is, by the way, look at like all your favorite musical artists. A lot of times, what you really know is their greatest hits, right? Unless you're like a super fan. Well, and you realize if you actually go to the albums, there's a lot of bad songs on those albums, right? This goes for most creative creative things. Movies and you know movies and books is a little different because it's more like someone is going to do ten of those in their life. But articles, songs, uh, you know, uh, podcast episodes, you know, things like this, you might do a thousand, and if if eighty are great, you're you you've crushed it, right? Like that's you're gonna you're gonna have a a huge great career. So it's more that because it's articles, this helps perfectionism a little too because you can just be like, you know, I've done what I can here. I think it's pretty good. It probably could change this or that, but like, I'm going to put it out and move on. And this is when the week deadline is helpful for the creator because it, it, there's that, it provides that counterforce against endless perfectionism. So yeah, I, and, and, and I've had some where I thought this one's going to be, people are going to love this and it didn't really work. Like it was fine. Some people liked it, got some more criticism than I thought, never really took off. Other times when I was correct, I predicted something would be big and it was. And other times when I was pleasantly surprised when I thought, I think this is pretty good, but I, I like, you know, that I, I, something about it is putting, is, is making me feel not so great about it. And I've already kind of like given up on it before I've been, I posted it and trying to move on to the next thing. And surprisingly, you know, it ends up having a lot of life. So I'm getting better maybe at figuring that out. And, uh, you know, a lot of the time it's also luck in that I, I, I think my millennials article, I don't think it's the greatest thing ever by, by any means. I think it's a uh, catchy, you know, fun article. I think if I put that out a year later or today, it might not do anything. It might have a little, you know, I really think that that was happened to be, you know, and that's just by pure luck, the exact right like moment for it. And it blew up on Facebook. And I don't even know what the news was the week before. Maybe there was some news story that, that primed everyone for that. I don't know. So th- that's another reason, you know, writing every week is good because sometimes you're just going to get lucky, but you, you don't give yourself a chance to get lucky if you're not writing very often. So I think um, there's some balance there, but the, 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 you know, coming back to the bigger point, Doing a pretty good article every week is far less likely to build a big career than build it, than writing a great article sporadically because the great article will stand out and um, and people won't forget it. Let's jump off from that point into a quick follow up. Let's say I'm starting with no audience and I've written something that I think is a great article. What do you think is my next steps for starting to get that in front of anybody? This answer is always changing, and I think the best thing you can do is to try to have your finger on the pulse of what the, that answer is at any given point. So in 2013, this is another way I think we got a little bit lucky. 2013, Facebook was like a, I think they were trying to show, they were just starting like paid ads, allowing content creators to pay to have their stuff put on new seeds, tar- targetings, you know, and all that. And I think they realized like, we have a gold mine here. Because the amount of inform data we have on and the targeting we can do, like there's never been anything like this for creators. And that's true. And they're like, we want to make a splash. And this is my guess. I don't know that I haven't confirmed this. But for a small, you know, three or four or six months, they made it so cheap. And so this is when BuzzFeed was really blowing up. This is when Upworthy came out of nowhere, blew up, Viral Nova. There were all these sites that blew up. And Wave of What happened to be starting at the same time. So we would pay something like 500 bucks. And it would go to like half a million news feeds, like some crazy thing just for a small amount of time. And it was like, wow. And so it brought all these people in. 
who wouldn't have seen it? And I put this like drawing on. So Facebook was by far our biggest engine. That's not true anymore. We don't even pay anymore because it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't, you know, we also have our email list now. And that once you have an email list, like, you know you're going to reach those people. And for me, that's actually what I care. Going viral has become way less important to me. What I care about is the, 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 the audience that's there, like giving them something like. So if I was starting it today, I would definitely still try. I would do all, I would obviously, I would, I, would, I would try to put it all over social media and grow those followings for sure. But I don't think it's like a silver bullet like it was. But, but like, okay, so, but like maybe TikTok is today in a weird way. And maybe... You know, so I don't, I don't know. The truth is I haven't, because I haven't been in this zone for a while, like how can we get attention for something new? I'm not as much of an expert on it as I became in 2013, but the answer in 2013 was Facebook. So, so I think in general, just like the big, more broader advice would be for sure, have the first call of action be sign up for our email list. That's how you capture someone, right? It becomes a floating audience. that's always there when you're ready for it. You snap and there they are, um, which is so valuable. And then the second call to action at the end of every post would be, follow us on XYZ. And then I would be posting regularly on those social media sites. One thing that's happened since the beginning is actually none of the social media sites that I know anymore, when you put links uh, like on Twitter or on Facebook, it doesn't go viral because they, they penalize you because you're taking people <laughs> off their site. So I think it's just simple. I don't know this, but it seems to me as simple as the, an algorithm tweak that says, if the post is taking people off Twitter, don't show it to people which links do. So what can get you a big following on Twitter separately is by doing kind of mini posts, like actually putting A plus content on Twitter. And that can get you a following pretty quickly. Same with Instagram, Facebook. And then you can use that to promote your stuff. I mean, again, it's hard because you can't, it's hard to link. You almost want to do that like LinkedIn bio thing on Twitter now and say, you know, a little fun thing and then say, um, check it out on the site. I don't know. Or maybe that still has people leave. I don't know how the algorithm works. But the point is that you know, you got to adapt to whatever changes have been made. Back then, they weren't penalizing links, which was awesome for content creators. And so, the the you know, grow those followings. But I'm but but I, I think the bigger advice I would say is I'm giving kind of old man advice in 2013. That's how we did it back in my day. Is kind of what I'd say. I would say be kind of the awesome, fresh young person who is smarter than me. So that's what everyone thinks is the right advice. Get your social media followings and your email list. No, but what now? What's what can you do that is clever? That, that, that is the 2021 way to do it. There's some new opportunity somewhere waiting to yes, be discovered. To exactly. Maybe it's TikTok and, and, and wherever that is, people are just figuring it out. So you can explode there because it's not saturated yet. When we come back, Tim and I dive deep into his writing and research process right after this. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, 
not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com slash science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Welcome back. In order for Tim to write these incredible in-depth pieces on subjects like aliens, brain computer interfaces, artificial intelligence, and more, he has to do a lot of research so that he can understand the topics himself. So I asked him how he approaches that research process. It depends on the article. Like if I'm writing about procrastination, it's going to be less research, more writing, because it's basically from my head, my own ideas about my own theories about why we do certain things. I don't, with those posts, I sometimes will make them research posts and get into actual like psych science. Often I'm trying to like express a common experience that I know a lot of people have, in which case that's more my own thoughts. And then sometimes I'm writing about brain-machine interfaces, and I need to learn. I need to learn everything about that. So it varies, but either way, the time actually typing words, writing is very small, because even if it's a post without much research, there's a huge stage of vomiting every idea I have onto some document, and then trying to organize it into what's the story here, what's the you know. What is the journey I want to take people down? It's not fun for me to just list a bunch of thoughts I have, right? It has to be some kind of beginning, middle, end journey. And that to me takes, you know, I'm sure some people are just naturals at um, immediately having that. But for me, I will, I will play around with that for a long time before I feel like, okay, ooh, this is now. It's, you know, it's always like when the outline is ready, you'll know. If I don't know yet, I'm like, I think this might be, it's like it's not ready yet. For a research post now, there's still all that. And there's this whole phase of learning. The way I think about research is, is more like bringing myself up to a certain level. So like the scale I like to talk about is like a um, one through 10. 10 is the most the world's leading expert on something. And nine has a PhD, you know, down to a one's never heard of the topic. So if I started a two or three, right, you know, depending on the topic, two or three is not nothing. It means like, you know, I, I can have a conversation about this. I have some initial thoughts, but I'm in that peak of the Dunning-Kruger thing. That's the thing I call Child's Hill. Well, you, well, you really think you get it, actually. And you, you're, you're actually at a two or three and you feel like you're, you're at like a six or seven. I wanted to jump in here quickly in case you're not familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect, because it's a really fascinating concept that I think is important to understand. The Dunning-Kruger effect is named after social psychologists David Dunning and Justin Kruger. It's a cognitive bias in which people with low knowledge or ability overestimate their ability. And similarly, people with high knowledge or ability tend to underestimate themselves. If you look at a graph, imagine the vertical y-axis as confidence, while the horizontal x-axis is knowledge. When you have just a shred of knowledge about something, we're prone to be overconfident in what we do know, because we're actually so unknowledgeable that we don't understand how much there really is to know about a topic. As we learn more about a topic, we realize how deep the rabbit hole goes, and we lose a ton of confidence that we know anything at all about that topic. This is why very smart people often suffer from imposter syndrome, because they actually know a lot, but they also realize how much they don't know, while their ignorant peers who know very little are steeped in overconfidence. 
That peak of complete overconfidence right before you lose confidence in yourself is what Tim has referred to as the child's hill. So then I'll try to get myself to an actual six or seven, which is the humbling process of digging in, realizing how simplistic your previous ideas were, realizing how much there is to the topic, getting daunted, feeling despair, feeling uh, dumb, uh, and and then starting to feel smart again as you you know read enough that uh, it starts to some wires start to get untangled and you start to crystallize and you start to connect some dots and then it becomes like exhilarating. You start to actually be learning more. And I try to get myself from like that three to like maybe a six. And a six is somewhere where it's not just that I could have a conversation, but I could do a Q&A of, for layman. So I could do a Q&A for layman. In other words, every question a layman might have about this at two or a three, I can give not just like an answer, but a pretty like nuanced answer. And I really know, you know what I'm talking about. I would not be on a panel of experts on this. That would, I'm not at that level, right? And I'm not doing anything original. I'm not doing any, I haven't contributed any original ideas to the field like, um, like an actual expert might. And I'm not going to teach like a, a college course on it, right? So I'm not there, but I, but I could do a Q&A of, I could sit around with a group of smart friends who are asking me about this for two hours and I could teach them the shit out of it. So I'm going to try to get there. And then comes the second thing, which is, okay, I know this now. Now that took me three weeks to get there, or maybe it took me three months. How can I in two hours or one hour bring people where I just got, you know, now that I know everything I know. So that's the outlining organizing process. And then there's the writing itself, which is, you know, not nothing, but I, I'll write, you know, between 2000 and 4,000 words on a good writing day. And then there's drawings and revisions and everything else. Something I really love about your writing that you've kind of alluded to, you know, you use, you use the images, you use the visuals, you also use metaphors and you use these different devices to help get points across. Can you talk about why you do that and how you know it's appropriate to bring those out? Yeah, I, I love metaphors um, as a teaching style and as just a thinking style for myself for a few reasons. First is, it's just the obvious. Like, okay, one metaphor that actually wasn't even mine, but I put it in, uh, I think, the post. Uh, it was the Neuralink. One of the Neuralink engineers mentioned this to me. Neuralink is Elon Musk's um, brain machine interfaces company. It's kind of his least talked about, but what maybe is his most ambitious company. The metaphor is that the brain is, our understanding of the brain is a lot like our understanding of the economy, meaning that on the micro level, we understand supply and demand of an, uh, of an individual consumer, right, and, and, and how that works, which is like understanding a neuron and what that neuron does and how it functions and how it fires and what it's doing. We also understand the really, really big picture. We understand macroeconomic forces and how they fit together as these puzzle pieces. Likewise, we understand the lobes of the brain. We understand this is the frontal lobe. It does this and this and this. We understand that the, the occipital lobe in the back is where your visual stuff is processed, right? But everything in the middle of those two layers, we don't understand very well. So we don't understand exactly, we know memories are here, but we don't really know. And we know that the neurons are firing, but we don't really understand how all those firing neurons turns into a memory. And likewise with the economy, if you actually dig in between those two layers, it's a mess. It's in these conflicting theories and it's just a you know, it's, it's super complicated. So for me, I understood the economy thing pretty well. And I, I understood the economy point pretty well. And so now I could take my understanding of that and leverage that and photocopy that understanding over here. There's another kind of metaphor, like I use characters sometimes. So when I procrastinate, I, there's these two characters in my brain, the rational decision maker and the instant gratification monkey. And these these two fighting. And that, that was actually initially kind of a more of a vague concept. I'm like, there's this like... I know I should do this, but I don't. I mean, I realize I'm like, there's two things. And then creating these characters 
helps kind of take something that is harder to define and a little bit more vague, and it brings clarity to it and makes it more memorable. So if, you know, if, if I describe these two forces with a bunch of words, in a week, you're not going to really probably remember exactly what I said. And in a year, you're definitely not. But if I had these two characters, you might be able to remember it forever. So it's both like stickier and more memorable, clearer to understand. But it also, a lot of the time, it leverages something you do understand and taking that to something you don't. One other example I just thought of is like, sometimes it's just like a concept. Like uh, the, the concept of, the, the, uh, I would call it like the digitization spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum, you're in ones and zeros. And on the other end, you're in total analog reality like an analog wave. like So this to me always pops into my head when I'm trying to simplify something about the world. You're trying to talk about Republicans and Democrats, right? The ones and zeros description of them is that the Republicans are old white Christian people who care about X, Y, and Z, and the Democrats are young, diverse, college-educated people who care about A, B, and C. And then you can get more and more nuanced. The analog reality is that these groups are made up of millions of complex, nuanced, individual, unique brains, each with their own complete different conception of the world, right? So you're, you're, not, you're never going to describe these groups in the full analog way, right? Because that would take forever. You could describe one person's outlook for a thousand pages. The question is how, if you're trying to write about these, the two parties and what's going on, as an example, it's something that writers or any kind of like people who are expressing ideas should be thinking about at least, like, where do I want to be on that spectrum? It's not that you know nuance is good. Well, not too much nuance, or again, you're, you're describing one person's brain for a thousand years. So how much nuance? And this is an important concept that then when I bring in this analog digital thing and the spectrum and showing how an actual wave gets digitized and gets simpler and simpler as you compress a file, that to me is, to, then I can use that as shorthand and refer again and again to analog, digital, analog, digital, and post after post. And readers know, okay, ah, it's triggering, when I say that thing, it's triggering this whole other thought process. Mm. So there's a lot of reasons to use a metaphor, I think. Um, but um, they're, I just think they're incredibly useful for so many things. Totally. I also like, you know, sometimes you describe things in terms of like aliens, so that we take ourselves and a lot of our biases out of it and try to think about things like a little bit more objectively. I think that's really useful too. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I remember I was in seventh grade and teacher did this thing where she gave us this thing to read. And it was about this like crazy barbaric tribe who like, you know, went into the shrine every night and like did this like weird uh, ritual with these things, something thing in your mouth. And then like, you know, describe this like very barbaric tribe and all these weird, like very, very foreign rituals. Turns out, of course, they're describing us and the shrine is the bathroom. The thing in your mouth is the toothbrush and the, the different words. And that stuck with me as like, if you can, it's, it's a tool. If you can step out and view yourself from a third party angle Without all of the normal assumptions, you have all this fresh eyes, you have this insight. So taking that and trying to be like, like comparing, like, I think, again, to bring up politics, like political bigotry, I think is a real thing. I think we're like, we're, right now, that's the one acceptable kind of bigotry. You can just be like, oh, you know, conservatives are a bunch of like dumb, like ignorant, you know, racist idiots. Like, that's a really bigoted thing to say about, you know, 100 million people, right? But we do it because it's acceptable. And so to, to try to like say, okay, well, what if you heard about another country and there were two races? or two religions, and they were talking about each other the way that we talk about each other's politi you know, politics, you'd be really concerned about that country. It's a way to like see us in a different way and be like, oh God, this is really bad. So yeah, I think there's a ton of use to that. One more thing that I, you know, is obvious about your research process and how much time you put into your writing. As you're learning and you're going from a two to a six, 
you are probably discovering some truths that later you put into a fantastic article and helps us understand things that in the moment of discovering them is probably kind of emotionally taxing. Do you ever experience that? Yes. The emotions I'm having as I'm researching, well, there's, there's two sets of emotions. There's the emotions about the content, which is I think what you're asking about, which is, you know, like if, if, if there's times when I literally will, like my eyes will physically open wide as I'm reading about like AI or something. And I'm like, my eyes open wide because I'm like so fascinated or there's some metaphor that clicks in my head and I'm like, oh. and if I have, this is again, thinking about the stadium of Tim's, like, I'm like, okay, th- that's, that's going to make the readers open their eyes wide. So this is good, right? This is going to make, cause a lot of the, the readers at this point have been, you know, they're, they, they're fascinated by the same kind of stuff that fascinates me. That's why they're readers. So a lot of times that the emotions I'm having will are a good gauge for the reader experience down the road. Like sometimes I'm bored. And that is really important. I'm like, this is a slog. I can't get through this research because I'm so uninterested. And I keep tuning out while I'm reading. If I'm interested in something, I'm not tuning out while I'm reading. I'm like glued to it. And so I'm like, okay, maybe this is important to put in there, but it better be short or I've got to figure out some way, some maybe metaphor, something to make it more interesting, a better way to tell this story than I can't just slog through this or it's going to be torture for readers. Then the second whole set of emotions is my own emotions as like a struggling writer wanting to kill myself, like trying to slog through these days. I feel like I'm in college, like writing a research paper, and which was my least favorite thing to do then. And I'm like, how is this my job right now? This is, I hate this sometimes. Uh, other times it's just like, I don't, it's just that I, it feels like this isn't going to be good. And I don't, I'm in despair about that, or I don't know how to do this. Why do, how would I take this topic on? So there's, and then there's exhilarating moments. Where I'm like, oh no, this is going to be good. Okay. No, I've clicked, you know? So there's a whole roller coaster for every writer, every creator, I'm sure that I go through. And then there's the emotions about the topic itself. What about the emotions of like, you know, your post the tail end where you talk about this life calendar and you break down, like we have this many weeks left in our life as you're realizing that and you're making that visualization and you're seeing it for the first time. Or, you know, some of these existential things we're talking about, there's like some potentially bad outcomes that can come from where we are in the point in history right now. And as you're writing about this, does that ever just like derail you? No, it doesn't derail me. Honestly, if I have a strong emotion, again, side by side with that strong emotion is excitement because I'm like, this is the right topic or this is important. This it, it, The worst feeling I can have is like, why am I, why did I pick this topic? Like what this does, this matter? Does anyone care? And when something I'm like, Oh, that's so sad. Oh my God. That, that, that like drawing is so sad. I'm thinking that's good because the sadness is real. It's not like I'm inventing this sadness. It's there and it's going to have it hit home in a way that, I mean, I'm only going to do it in the first place if I think it's productive. I'm not going to just try to make people depressed for the sake of it. But I'm like, if, if, if the emotion is like, this is so sad and it's making me want to do something, like see my parents more or whatever, even if it's not as clearly productive, if I'm tapping into some deep emotion, it's almost not my job. Like readers will figure out how to make it productive for themselves, but there's something there that we should be feeling for whatever reason. So I think that the, the, the more, the really intense moments are, are almost always like, I feel like I'm doing the right thing as a writer, which is, you know, at that moment, I'm so centered on like the craft and is this the right thing to be doing? And like, what am I, you know, is this a good thing I'm making that that's probably more powerful than even like, I am more likely to be excited to keep going than I am to like want to stop because I'm sad. You've been very vocal about the existence of perfectionism and procrastination in your life. And these are terms that are often used pretty negatively, but it seems like, you know, you found a way to use them or weaponize them or at least curb them. So do you think about those as 
inherently negative traits or are there a way because everyone listening to this probably has those tendencies to some degree how do you how do you recommend they wrestle with them and make them productive yeah i think but i started to i think that everyone i think this is that almost a universal thing self-defeats in some way in a way that makes no sense there's an irrational fear that that just holds them back from all this stuff they could be doing or could be liking an irrational stubbornness that they, they, they don't have all these life experiences they could have, whatever it is, or it's procrastination, or it's they, they, they eat unhealthily, or they, they don't exercise, or they, I don't want to say, you know, drugs is a, you know, can be in this pit, but that's, that gets to even a, a second thing, which is, you know, there's also like legit neurological addiction that can happen. But, you know, I think it's a slippery, I think it's actually like, I, I don't think it's a totally different thing. I think a lot of these things are neurological addictions. They're just maybe not like, you know, drugs might be on the end of the spectrum of like, a, you know, a heroin addiction where, you know, you, you it's physically dangerous to, to, to go through withdrawal. But I think these things are all on some spectrum of we can become addicted to self-defeating and we, um, and, and it's, it's this tendency we have. And I think the reason probably we have it is that I don't think people in 10,000 BC or a hundred thousand BC were self-defeating exactly because their brain, which is just a tool, your hand is is crafted by evolution to be good at what human hands needed to do in 50,000 BC. Same with your eyes. You know, our eyes were actually better at seeing under the ocean than they ever are on land because they're ocean eyes first. They're fish eyes. And our brain is the same thing. Our brain is a tool that's been crafted by evolution to be good at what? Living in New York City in 2020? No. Our brain has been crafted to be really good at living in 50,000 BC, socially, productively, and whatever else. The fears then, the dangers, the, the things you needed to do, that's what your brain's meant to do. So flash to today, and you take that brain out of its environment, and the brain's impressive. It's plastic. It can say, well, I'll try to handle this new environment, but I, it's not my natural thing. So when you're self-defeating, what I think it is, is I think it's that the, the brain's natural programming, trying to do its thing, misinterpreting this world as the old world and trying to do its thing and it's misfiring. So an irrational fear that was not, that's based on a real fear back then is now irrational today and it's holding you back. So I think that this is the problem is that we just, our brains are kind of in the wrong place and it's doing its best, but it's best is often not so great. So um, when I procrastinate, like, yeah, I'm, I'm we, you know, because our, my brain is not meant to be doing long-term projects where the dopamine hit isn't right around the corner. It's meant to be doing long-term projects only out of desperation, like hunting, and you're gonna, you know, or short, short-term things where the dopamine hit is right as soon as you start doing it. My brain's not meant to be working on this long thing that's the, the the dopamine hit is three weeks away, and there's not like desperation. My brain's just like, why would I ever do this? This is not what I want to do. So I'm, I'll self-defeat. So uh, that, that's what I think it comes from. And so I think we all have something like this, maybe multiple things, and I think it's just about understanding why, being easier on your brain, not being so mad at yourself. You're trying your best. It's trying its best. And then trying to learn to trick it because the brain's not that smart, actually. And you can trick it. You know, you can, sometimes I'll procrastinate on like, you know, the less important things like email by doing the important things like writing. And I'll kind of trick my brain and I'm like, oh, oh God, this inbox, I just can't, I can't. And then I'll like be like, oh, what if I just skip it? And I go and like work on my outline, which is way more fun. And then suddenly I'm working on my real important things. I've tricked my dumb brain because he's so excited to not do the email. So that's the thing is you can trick it if you understand. It's like a dog. You can train it if you understand it, but it's not naturally going to be doing everything the right way. You have to work on it. This conversation with Tim really had me thinking for weeks afterwards. 
When I asked Tim what he would say to people who just want to be like Tim Urban, I thought for sure he would talk about how important consistency is. But what I really heard in this interview is a very strongly held belief in the power of doing phenomenal A-plus work that stands out. Just as James Clear said, the compounding results apply to the winners at the head of the growth curve, and doing incredible work is how you stand out. I also really appreciated Tim's careful balance with nuance. Nuance, while important, is nearly infinite in how deeply you can dive into a topic. And so even though it's important, it can quickly overwhelm the scope of an idea and make things too convoluted to be useful. I feel fortunate to have had Tim on the show. And if you want to learn more about his writing, go to waitbutwhy.com or follow Tim at waitbutwhy on Twitter. Thanks to Tim for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. I want to hear what you thought about this episode. So you can tweet at me at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next week. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.